This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. And now, from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is the Business of Healthcare. Here is your host, John Barquette. Welcome to the Business of Healthcare. I'm your host for this week, John Barquette. Director of Policy Affairs at Willis Towers Watson, and I'm also a Wharton Healthcare Management alumnus. Our show today is going to take a look at drug pricing and how closely it aligns with the benefits we get from taking prescription drugs. If you'd like to join our discussion at any time during the hour, please give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. We've got a great lineup today. Joining us in the first half hour by phone will be Robert, Robert Zirkelbach, uh, the Executive Vice President of Policy Affairs for the Pharmaceutical Research and Manufacturers of America. That's Pharma, the Trade Association Pharma. And in the second half of our show, uh, I'll be joined by Stephen D. Pearson, the founder and president of the Institute for Clinical and Economic Review, also known as ICER, uh, a nonprofit organization whose goal is to improve healthcare value. Uh, but first comes first, uh, Robert Zirkelbach, welcome to the show. Oh, great. Thank you for having me on. I, I want to especially thank you for coming on after what must have been a, a tough a tough week last week. Um, you know, first President Trump comes out and he reiterates his claims that the drug companies are getting away with murder. Then the Los Angeles Dodgers hang eleven runs on your beloved Chicago Cubs, and then and that knocks them out of the playoffs. And then finally, uh, the Iowa Hawkeyes lose a stunner in overtime to uh, the Northwestern Wildcats. It's been a tough week. I'm really grateful that you mustered up. The courage to come on the show. Well, you know, I didn't know you were going to go there, but I, th- thanks for uh, reminding me. Because, <laughs> <laughs> uh, those, those were all all very tough things to have to deal with in in, in one week time. But uh, I, I don't know which one was 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 the hardest to deal with. I'll tell you that. <laughs> we're just, we're just happy you're here, Robert. Thank you again for joining the show. Um, you know, the president talks about drug companies getting away with murder. Uh, that was an applause line he would use on the campaign trail. But you know, for so many people. Uh, they taking prescription. They take prescription drugs so they can lead a full life. You know that these these help people lead drugs help people lead lives the way they like to. And I just want to start off with that that kind of inherent tension. We have to pay for drugs, but the drugs really help us a lot. How would you characterize um, the problem? I'm putting that in quotes. The problem of drug prices in America. Yeah, this is a a, a great question. And you know, as you know very well, that prescription drug prices and and is a complicated issue, and yep. there's a lot of different factors that go into this. But I think we should all acknowledge the fact that um, patients are are being asked to pay far more for their medicines than they were asked before, and and then they are being asked to pay for other parts of uh, other healthcare services, and that's creating a real financial burden. Um, and there's no wonder that people are concerned, and that policymakers are focused on this issue. You know, I'll I'll just give you an example. You know, five or ten years ago, what was most common was that a patient would pay you know, a, a small copay to access their medicine, maybe $20 or, or, or $30. Today, what's most common is that a patient has to pay a deductible before they get any prescription drug coverage. Right. And that deductible might be two, three, four, even $5,000 uh, that they have to pay out of pocket for health care before they get drug coverage. And then instead of getting, you know, paying a $25 copay, they may have to pay a coinsurance, so a percentage of their medicine rather than a flat dollar figure. And it's more likely that they have to get prior approval from their insurance company or try an older medicine before they can get access to the new innovative treatment. So all of those things are making it much harder and, and much more costly to the patient to be able to access their medicines. Right. And you know, you're right. The day of the $5 copay plan is, is long gone for most Americans. Um, but lots of things in healthcare are expensive. It's not just prescription mm-hmm. drugs, and there's lots of examples of exorbitant pricing out there. Why, why do drug companies get singled out? Well, I, I think part of, I guess, I think one of the reasons that we're seeing that focus is because there's been such a shift in how, in exactly what we were just talking about, in what patients pay out of pocket. They're feeling much more of the cost of medicines today than they did before, um, and you pay a higher share of your medicine cost than if you go to the physician's office or if you go to, to the hospital. Um, one of the things that we've really focused on is this exact issue. How do we make sure that when there are negotiations happening in the marketplace, that those are being passed along to patients when they go to the pharmacy. Uh, we know that right now when a patient goes to the hospital, 
uh, to, uh, and they have a, a, you know, an out-of-pocket health care expense, it's based on a negotiated rate. Uh, but when they go to the pharmacy, uh, they have to pay the list price of the medicine, um, even if their insurance company got a significant discount. So there's, there's a real gap in, in what's happening in the negotiations that are happening with the insurance company and what the patient's ultimately being asked to pay. Let me ask you about that. So we enroll in health insurance with our health insurance plan, mm-hmm. maybe through our employer, and that insurance company has worked out an, uh, a deal with, is it is it your member companies with, with the drug manufacturers themselves? Correct. Mm-hmm. And, and then why is it then that when we say go to the pharmacy and we present our insurance card to the pharmacist and that card says, you know, this, are, this is our drug benefit, uh, and maybe the drug benefit says I pay 20% of the cost of this prescription. Are you, are you telling me that the person there at the pharmacy is paying 20% of the list price, not the price that my insurer negotiated with your member organizations? That's, yeah, that's exactly what I'm, I'm telling you. And, and that's and your policymakers and a lot of other folks are starting to ask real questions about why that is. You know, our organization commissioned a report earlier this year to take a look at, you know, how how big are these discounts and rebates um, going back to insurance companies or uh, pharmacy benefit managers? Those are the people that insurance companies hire to negotiate on their behalf. And what our report found is that, on average, the, comp- the, the brand biopharmaceutical company, the company that actually developed the medicine, only keeps about 63% of the list price of the medicine. That means almost 40% is being rebated back either to the government or to insurance companies or other middlemen in the system. Uh, but as you point out, when a patient goes to the pharmacy and they have a deductible or they have a coinsurance, which is about half the time, uh, that uh, is based off of that list price, uh, no matter how big those negotiations are. So they're being asked to pay far more of the cost of those uh, medicines. Um, again, even if there's big discounts that, and, and money that's flowing back, we know that in the last year we have data for, there's $100 billion in rebates that were going back to insurers and other parts of the system. And, and we need to make sure that that's making its way to patients. So let me ask you this. What, what happens to those rebate dollars? Are, do they go to um, just profits of the, of the pharmacy benefit managers or the pharmacies themselves? Or are they kept by the insurer or, or maybe it's the employer who's, who's paying for this? And kind of those savings are shared across of everybody, not just the person who happens to be sick, to, to lower costs. Well, that's a great question. The, the honest answer is we don't exactly know where all those dollars go. I, it, the, it's most likely that it's both. There's no question that insurance companies use those rebate dollars to hold down overall premiums. Um, but there's certainly a share of that that is kept by the middlemen. Um, they, they keep a, sh- a, a percentage of all of the, the rebates. So they would much prefer to have a higher list price with a bigger rebate because that's how uh, that's how they make their money. Um, but it is a question about you know I think and people are starting to ask questions about where do those dollars ultimately go and how do we make sure that they're being used uh, most appropriately. But we want to also make sure that insurance does what it's intended it's supposed to do. Right, the purpose of insurance is uh, to to spread the cost among everybody, and it doesn't make sense to say we're going to increase costs for the sickest patients who need medicines so that we can lower everybody else's premiums. That, that defeats the fundamental purpose of what insurance is supposed to do. Right. Let me just ask you one more question about these rebates, because here's what I couldn't figure out. You, you said just now that these pharmacy benefit managers, who are the organizations that insurance companies appoint to uh, create a drug benefit for their insurance plans, um, that they would prefer a higher list price so that they can get higher rebates. Now, now how does that work? Because isn't it, isn't it the, the, you, the drug manufacturer that sets the list price, or is that not right? No, absolutely. The drug manufacturer does set the list so price. So the PBM says, hey, guy, hey, drug manufacturer, um, I'd like you to take this, this drug that you manufacture, and I'd like, you to, I'd like you to just raise the price so that I can get a bigger rebate. And then what does the drug manufacturer say in return? Yeah, so I think one thing that's important is is to, to point out just to help answer that question is that there's this is a highly 
consolidated marketplace. So three pharmacy benefit managers control 80% of the market. They have mm. huge negotiating leverage. Um, some of the biggest pharmacy benefit managers are negotiating on behalf of more people than many European countries mm. um, to give you a sense of the size. And so what they do, in particular, if you've got two you know, brand biopharmaceutical companies who have medicines, they go to, they go to them and say, Who, whoever gives me the biggest rebate is going to get placed on the formulary. Um, and so there's, you know, so companies have to then continue to, to give greater, bigger and bigger rebates um, and, and, and oftentimes have to then increase list prices to be able to give those, those rebates. Um, that creates misaligned incentives in the system. And when you have a, when you have a situation where 40% of the list price of the medicine is being rebated back, I mean, it's unclear where those dollars are going. I think that tells all of us that we really need to, to, to find a way to have the system evolve so that we're paying for medicines based on what works best for patients. Yeah. I guess there's, there's still just like one thing I don't understand, which is like if Amazon, let's say Amazon said to uh, a, a manufacturer of a, of a consumer packaged good, you know, you, you can, we'll sell on your, we'll let, we'll sell your product on our platform, but um, we, we want it to be, uh, we, we want a bigger cut. We want a bigger cut of this. Um, I don't, it's not that easy for a manufacturer of a consumer packaged good to say, okay, no problem. We'll raise our price. And you can have a bigger cut. And that's because they are competing with other makers of consumer packaged goods uh, who who would gain market share if all of a sudden this one company raised its price. Is is that not the case for drug manufacturers as well? When, when a PBM says, all right, we want a bigger rebate. We've got a lot of market power. Um, give us a bigger rebate. It sounds like drug manufacturers are able to say, oh, okay, we'll raise the list price. And get, and get you a big, bigger rebate, but that doesn't seem to affect market share, or does it? Tell me how that works. Well, it's it's a great question, and you know, we, we, you know, as a trade association, uh, we can't talk to our, our our member companies about the specific negotiations that they're having uh, with with payers. And I so, I, I, it's important to sort of to, to stipulate. Um, that, but I'll give you a great example. There's been a, a lot of focus in the media about uh, insulin uh, for diabetes mm-hmm. and how the prices have gone up. But what most people don't realize is that uh, the insulin manufacturers, the amount of money that they receive, um, has actually been flat or been going down in recent years. Mm-hmm. Um, all of that, uh, those are the 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 costs there, the higher prices that have been focused in the media, are going to of the middleman in the system. And I think what's unique about the way medicines are priced, and I think why people are rightly asking a lot of questions, is because the, they, they're making a, a money off of, as a share of how big the rebate is, not on how big of the, 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 what the, lower, the lowest price is. And that um, is why people are starting to ask a lot of these questions. Got it. Yeah, I read a Wall Street Journal article um, that talked about those three makers of insulin and how uh, a lot of what you said, right? A lot of the price increases have been captured by the middlemen. Um, I thought that was really fascinating. I again, I wondered how uh, the the with such competition for insulin, these three different companies battling it out to get the highest placement on a PBM's formulary. You know, how is it that they're just able to all raise their prices versus compete and not lowering their prices? But I, I take your point that that's a negotiation that goes on by your member companies and insurers. And we'll have to keep an eye out for more reporting on that subject. I want to ask you another question, Robert. And again, thank you for answering those questions because I honestly, it's like any, you start looking into this issue and you just have to start scratching your head after a little bit of research because it's so hard to understand. And I'm grateful that you're being on here. So here's another question that comes up a lot. And, and again, I'll go back to President Trump, something he said recently. He said, you look at the same exact drug by the same exact company made in the same exact box and sold someplace else, like another country, uh, sometimes it's a fraction of what we pay in this country, uh, meaning, as usual, the world is taking advantage of the United States. When folks in other countries pay less for prescription drugs than we do here in America, are they taking advantage of us? Well, that's a, that's a great question, and I would make a couple um, a, a couple of points about that. If I can make one comment um, on, on the previous discussion before I jump into this, um, I, I did want to to point out that the overall cost trends that you're, you know, we, we talk about sort of the, the confusion in the system about how rebates work, but I, it shouldn't take away from the fact that we do have a highly competitive system that it does help to lower overall cost. And despite all of the focus that you're seeing in the media, 
prescription drug costs right now are growing at the slowest rate they've grown they've grown in years. Mm. Um, just today, one of the biggest pharmacy benefit managers uh, put out a report saying that so far in 2017, overall prescription drug costs have um, remained have increased about one percent. Roughly flat, um, so that you know, there is a you know that is helping to lower overall costs, and I don't want to send the wrong signal that that system isn't helping to bring down those costs. But you do raise a, an important question about uh, what what's happening in in other countries. Um, I, I would make a I would make a couple points. I think sometimes the cost differentials between the U.S. and other countries can be. Uh, exaggerated uh, for a couple of reasons. One of those is that it almost focuses exclusively on that list price here in the U.S., mm-hmm. uh, which doesn't really reflect what we're really paying here compared to what they're paying in, in, in other countries. I see. Um, and so uh, I'll point you to another report that came out from um, many of the, the Pharmacy Benefit Association, uh, Trade Association, which they said that earlier this year, uh, there was so much competition happening in uh, the new hepatitis C cures. They were in the headlines for quite some time, um, that we're actually paying less uh, for those medicines here in the U.S. than they're paying in many European countries. Um, That's not the case with all medicines, but um, there are those examples where we have such competition here that it does help to lower cost. That being said, um, I, I would point out that our entire healthcare system is more expensive here in the U.S. than it is in, in other countries, um, and we're we're spending roughly the same share of our healthcare dollars on medicines that they are in most of these other countries in the world that often are part of these conversations, um, and yet patients get access to them to medicines uh, uh, here, more medicines here, and they get access to them earlier. Um, there's a big trade-off of what you see happening in other countries where they restrict patients' access to some of the newest, most innovative uh, treatments, and that has devastating impacts on patient uh, quality of life and their overall overall health. And, and so, yeah, they, they do um, price control their medicines, and as a result, they're able to, 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 to reduce what they spend on some of those. But the way that they do that means that patient, patients don't get access to those medicines. And I think that's a trade-off that people here in the United States wouldn't want to have. I see. I'm John Barquette, and you're listening to The Business of Healthcare on Sirius XM Channel 111. Today, we're discussing the cost of prescription drugs. My guest is Robert Zirkelbach, Executive Vice President of Public Affairs for the Pharmaceutical Research and Manufacturers of America. If you'd like to uh, join the conversation, please give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Let me follow up on one other point, because you you have the president out there saying, maybe we should look at other countries and ask them to pay more, and that would help alleviate our costs here in the United States. Is, Is that something you agree with? Well, we absolutely need to look at what other countries are are doing, and one of the ways to do that is through um, our uh, trade agreements that we have with other countries. Um, in many cases, uh, some of the practices that other countries are uh, doing when it comes to medicines um, is a direct violation of some of the existing trade agreements that are in place. And so we are pleased that the president is looking at this and think and believe that we need to look harder at, at enforcing our current trade agreements um, and looking for new, stronger trade agreements that will make sure that con- that other countries are protecting intellectual property in the way that, that we do here that enables uh, the types of innovation that everybody wants um, and, and needs for us to be able to t- take on some of the big challenges that we're facing in our healthcare system. And, and just to be sure, if I'm if I walk into a, my local pharmacy and go to fill a prescription, and I just heard news that um, the United States had negotiated a better trade agreement around the world, um, w- should I think, okay, well that's good now that those trade agreements are being more effectively enforced? Like, is there some mechanism that will transfer back to my getting a lower cost on my prescriptions, or should I not necessarily tie those two things together? Well, I think that's I think it's a great question. I know that comes up in a lot of these you know conversations. I think that is exactly so, you know it, it all depends on what are those types of agreements and and what is the the, the result of that. I think part of the imbalance that we see, um, no question, has to do with the fact that other countries are refusing to pay their share. Um, and I think a lot of economists have looked at this and suggested that the more that we can have a level play playing field, um, and the more we can have more competition um, through direct competition from companies, but also more money being invested in R&D and more medicines coming to the marketplace, that that can in- inject the kind of competition uh, that we need. One of the things that g- gets ignored in these conversations is that if you go to the pharmacy and you get your medicine, 90% chance that medicine's actually generic. 
Um, and I think that gets missed in a lot of these conversations. Almost every price comparison that we see um, is focused on the 10% of medicines in the U.S. that go to brand. Um, what people don't realize is, is that, yes, we have um, you know, brand prices might be uh, higher here in the U.S. when medicine's under patent. But the moment that they, the company loses its patent protection, immediately uh, those companies go to generic. Um, and we have a far higher penetration of generic medicines here in the United States than in other countries. Um, and in many cases, our generic medicines are cheaper here uh, than in other countries. And so we, we, we might front load some of those costs at the beginning of a patent life, but over the long run, we have more generic medicines and they're cheaper and more accessible here in the United States than other parts of the country. And that's what frees up our ability to be able to fund more innovation and in some of the newest treatments. I want to ask you about uh, our funding newest innovations in one second. But first, Robert, we have a caller, uh, Renee from South Carolina. You're on the business of healthcare. Hey, guys. Thanks for taking my call. You're welcome. I of course. Hope, um, my question makes sense. I was wondering with the with the middleman, with the PBMs, and the, the prices are kind of hidden and jacked up, and people are paying more than maybe they should, why do the pharmaceutical companies not just sell their drugs themselves and then you could say whatever x drug was would be $25 a month for everybody instead of all these rebates and the insurance and the pharmacies collecting a fee couldn't we cut out all of this Robert well that's a uh, that's a great question um uh, I, I think what's important to understand is that it's, it's ultimately your insurance company that determines what you pay out of pack pocket to access the, the medicine. And so and this is the, you know, the, the payers are the ones who uh, are in the driving seat when it comes to a lot of these conversations. You know, they have they control 80 percent of the market um, and, and they're able to uh, you know, sit down at the negotiating table and, and have these types of arrangements. I think the good news is that people are starting to ask questions and we're starting to take a broader look um, at what is the role of the entire biopharmaceutical supply chain um, in impacting what patients ultimately pay for medicines. Um, there was just a hearing in Congress last week that was focused on this very issue. I think there's, it's getting attention from policymakers uh, who are beginning to look, look under the hood uh, more than they have in the past. Renee, thanks so much for your call. And we're taking more calls at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. Robert, you just brought up a hearing that uh, took place in the Senate last week uh, on on drug prices. And one of the issues that several senators brought up was this issue of price transparency. They kind of suggest, well, maybe if we had a better sense of what the prices were, uh, kind of like Renee was just suggesting on the call that, um, you know, pharmaceutical pricing would, would make more sense to patients and consumers. Do you think price transparency is a, is a direction that we should be going in? Well, I think it's a question of what kind of transparency are uh, we talking about. Um, if you, you know, if you talk to patients um, and ask them, I think the good kind. I don't, I don't know. Is there a bad? I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, there, there can be. You okay. know, so when you talk to patients um, and you tell what kind of transparency would they like, they want to know what their if their medicines covered. Um, you know, if their hospitals in their network, what is their out of pocket cost going to be uh, when they go to the go to the pharmacy? Um, what a lot of policymakers have, have been advancing when it comes to transparency is we want to know uh, the R&D cost that company invested in to develop a new innovative treatment. That might sound simple, but it's actually really quite complicated because um, innovation in the biopharmaceutical industry is incredibly risky. And nine out of 10 medicines that go into clinical trials never make its way to patient. Yet every one of those failures teaches us something about how a medicine works or how the human body operates. Um, so if you only look at, hey, what's the R&D cost of a successful medicine, but don't really look at um, how all of the other investments and the risk that went into developing a medicine, it's not going to give you a true picture of what it takes to bring a cost. And, and it's not going to provide any information that's actually actionable or helpful to patients. I see. There was a recent bill passed in California that w was transparency related. Can, did that get at the cost of developing drugs, or was was that more about the the price, uh, the list price? Well, that was had a number of um, elements to it, but one of them was actually requiring companies to give advance notice of a price increase, which uh, no other part of the the, health, uh, the the healthcare system operates where you you have to notify people in advance if a price is going to increase, so that then you know that creates 
you know, causes people to want to stockpile the medicine um, and, mm. and want to create shortages and really uh, could disrupt the overall uh, system. You know, the overall system. It was it was an effort to get at that, but really didn't get at the issues that patients care about. Or what are they paying out of pocket, and how can they actually be able to have more predictability in what their healthcare costs are going to be? So there, are, you're suggesting there there would be unintended consequences to for there to be more public transparency as to when a price of a drug was going up. Uh, cor- correct. Ab- absolutely. I got it. Um, we have uh, another caller, Robert. Uh, Christine from California. You're on the business of healthcare. Hi, am I on? Yes, you're on, Christine. Go ahead. Oh, did I lose you? No, you're still there, Christine. Are you there? Are you there? We are here. Hi, sorry, I'm in my car. So my question is, um, I have a daughter who's type 1 diabetic, uses Novolog in her uh, insulin pump, wondering why there's no generic for Novolog. The prices continue to skyrocket. Glucagon kits are triple what they used to be maybe five years ago. Very profitable disease. I can't imagine why anybody would want to cure it having to do with the pharmaceutical company. Mm. Can you speak to any of those questions? Okay, thank you very much for your question, Christine. I'll have Robert answer that. I'll just I'll just note before, I, Robert himself does not work for a manufacturer of insulin, but Robert, can you address our caller's question? I can because I, I think it really gets at the heart of some of the issues we talked about earlier in this call. Um, there is a lot of competition in the insulin space, and there continues to be innovation in that space where companies are, are continually improving uh, the quality and effectiveness of the insulins coming on the marketplace. Um, and as a result, there, there, there has... There is price negotiation that is, is happening, but as we talked about earlier, um, uh, the the company, what the companies, the, the insulin manufacturers are getting, is remain roughly flat in recent years, um, and that's because all there's been significant rebates and discounts that have been given for insulin more than even many other medicines. Um, it's been publicly reported that uh, insurance companies are getting anywhere from 50 to 60 percent discounts off the price of insulin. Um, however, uh, when a patient like the caller that just was on the phone goes to the pharmacy, too often they're being asked to pay the full list price. They pay the full freight, uh, even though their insurance company is getting a, a, a 50 or 60 percent discount. Um, we need to ask questions of whether that's really the best way to be delivering health care services in this country where there's significant uh, uh, rebating going back to insurance companies, but they're not making its way to patients, and they're being who are asking to be who are being asked to pay more every single year. Um, we share the concerns that people are raising about issues like that. Uh, Christine, thanks so much for your call. And again, we are taking calls here on the business of healthcare. If you want to join the conversation, you can do so by calling one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. Robert, I have just one last question for you before we let you go, uh, and that is your colleague. Lori Riley at the Senate hearing last week talked about uh, how market competition and any any ways in which we could encourage market competition is the best way uh, to uh, rationalize drug pricing going forward. Uh, could you talk about what s- steps we could take uh, to encourage market competition in the pharmaceutical industry? Uh, absolutely. Um, I, I think that's a, that's a, it's a great question. Uh, there's a couple ways. I think one of the things that's important to keep in mind is that we need to look at both how do we get more generic competition yep. um, and, and how do we get more competition uh, within the brand space. A lot of the, the headlines over the last couple of, of years, from Martin Scarelli to EpiPen, they all have one thing in common. Uh, they're all actually off-patent generic medicines that have seen a significant uh, price increase. And one of the reasons they're able to do that is for, for too long, it's, it's taken uh, way too long to get a generic medicine approved uh, by the FDA. So someone can buy an old medicine, increase the price, knowing that it's going to take a competitor uh, you know, a couple of years to be able to come on the market and offer a, a lower-priced um, alternative. That's one set of, of challenges, and there's important incentives that the FDA is currently taking under current uh, new, new commissioner Scott Gottlieb to speed the approval of generic medicines to bring more competition in that space. Um, on the other side, we also need to make sure that we're looking at what's the FDA approval process uh, for some of the newest innovative treatments. Uh, one of the things that's really exciting right now is that um, we are truly in a new era of medicine where the medicines coming on the marketplace today are entirely different than the types of medicines we would have seen just five or seven years ago. Uh, they're mostly biologics made with real living cells, 
They're targeted to the unique genetic makeup of individual patients. We have things like immunotherapies that are you know, re, you know, using the body's own immune system to fight disease or CAR-T therapies where we're actually taking cells out of the body and, and reprogramming them and putting them back in. Um, so one of the things that's incumbent upon all of us is to make sure that the regulators at the FDA have all of the tools and resources they need to keep up with 21st century science, um, because that's going to be an, an enable us to get more of these innovative life-saving medicines to the market faster, um, which will result in more competition in that marketplace. And we know from example after example after example that when there's more competition, uh, medicines competing, that it helps to bring down overall cost. Um, and, and that's one of the reasons why we're, we've seen recent cost trends um, at their lowest rate in years. Robert Zirkelbach, thank you so much for joining the show. Thank you for having me on. Uh, to keep up with Robert, you can follow him on Twitter at, at Rob Zirk, Z-I-R-K. Uh, we need to take a short break, but stay with us when we come back. I'll speak with Steve Pearson of the Institute for Clinical and Economic Review. You're listening to The Business of Healthcare on Sirius XM 111. You're listening to The Business of Healthcare. Here again is John Barquette. Welcome back. This is The Business of Healthcare on Sirius XM Channel 111. Today we're discussing whether the benefits we get from prescription drugs are worth the prices we pay for them. And our next guest is just the man uh, to have in this conversation. I'm thrilled to welcome to the show Dr. Steve Pearson. Uh, Steve, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, John. Now, uh, Dr. Pearson, you're you're the founder and president of the Institute for Clinical and Economic Review, uh, otherwise known as ICER. And uh, not everyone will know what ICER is. So could you first start off by talking to us about uh, exactly what ICER is? Oh, sure. Absolutely. So um, I started ICER as an academic research project when I was full-time uh, faculty at Harvard Medical School. Um, but we've grown over the years. It was about 10 years ago. We're now an independent um, and nonprofit research institute, um, funded almost exclusively by nonprofit foundations since our um, since our beginning. Um, so we're we're based up in Boston, but we have programs around the country. Got it. Okay. And so and so, what types of programs do you offer? The 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 main ones, as I understand it, is you evaluate um, therapies, whether they be drugs or other types of clinical therapies, uh, and and tell us if. Uh, sort of what their value is to us. Well, you, you put a price on these things. Is that right? Yeah, that's what we try to do. I mean, the overall goal um, really is to, is to try to help our overall healthcare system use evidence as the foundation on which to make sure that, you know, we can afford innovative, high-value care for all patients. And that means we have to cast a broad, you know, net across the whole spectrum of healthcare and think carefully about the value of different treatments, what their price is, what, you know, for whom they work best and for whom they don't. So we do a variety of different uh, things in that, in that way. First, we do um, assessment reports, which are kind of academic, uh, you know, deep dives into the data. Um, and we do these, again, on tests, on a variety of different treatments, but we're, we're doing a, an increasing number of them on new drugs um, at or near the time of FDA approval. And with those reports, what we hope to do is, is to really kind of put out in the public domain a report that really kind of uh, looks carefully at the evidence on how much better this drug might be at helping patients and which patients. But we also look hard at the long-term cost effectiveness. So, you know, how much does it cost us and does it perhaps prevent hospitalizations or doctor visits downstream, which would be a great thing, and try to wrap all that up and try to find out ultimately whether the added uh, cost, if there is added cost, is, in a sense, in alignment with the added benefit to patients, and that's kind of what the goal of cost-effectiveness is. So we wrap all this up in a report, but we also convene public meetings because it's been very important to us since the beginning that these not just be academic products and that they not just be reports for insurers um, or other policymakers. So we, we have independent committees of doctors and patients and public representatives and methods experts and they basically meet in public with all the other uh, kind of players in the game, the manufacturers, the health plans, the doctors' groups. And we really try, again, to look carefully at the evidence. This independent committee gets to vote on it. And then we have policy roundtables where we try to figure out how we move forward. What's, you know, how do we work with pricing, with what patients have to pay out of pocket, um, and how kind of we engineer the whole healthcare system, again, with that larger goal in mind, which is to make sure that we can continue to afford and incentivize um, highly innovative and high-value care. 
So it sounds like you're doing a careful study to see if new technologies and innovations are uh, uh, worth worth purchasing. Right. Forgive me if I thought that the whole healthcare system was doing that already. Is that not the case? <laughs> do do health insur- insurers and in- employer purchasers, are they not already asking, hey, are, are we getting our money's worth? Oh, they definitely are. And, and they have different tools, um, as do doctors, groups, and, and, and others. Um, but they, ha- they have def- different tools in different parts of the health system. So they can have contracts, for instance, with hospitals and doctor groups. Um, they can have contracts with insurers. They really kind of align their incentives so that the hospitals and doctors are, are in a sense, paid more to provide high-value care that are keeping patients healthy and even out of the hospital, um, as opposed to, you know, paying them for the volume of patients that might come into the hospital. It's been harder to do that in the the area of drugs because they're still basically paid, you know, the drug companies are paid more every pill or every injection they sell. And so insurers, for a variety of reasons, have had, uh, I think, a a more difficult time in figuring out how to structure the kinds of payments for drugs that would create a really more competitive landscape and one that would align best with what we want for patients, which is both to keep them healthy and obviously treat them when they get sick. So how, so you just, I wanted to ask you this, you just started to go into it, but maybe you could just say a bit more about how drug prices are, are set today. And I'll follow up with you in a second on, on how you might recommend we change that, but just give us a primer. Sure. Well, it's, uh, it's not like most people probably figure because, um, Here's what happens uh, on the day that the FDA approves a drug, and that takes a long time and a lot of investment in many cases. But the day that that happens, the company basically gets a free check. They can name their price in the U.S. market. And we alone among industrialized countries do not have a federal agency or institute um, set up by the government to again, to take a look at the evidence and to negotiate prices to, with some kind of metric of what would a fair price be for that country. So um, now, again, we, we expect that competition would help companies not be able to run up the price. But there are lots of reasons that our system is not set up as a true free market. Um, to start with, you know, the companies have patents uh, that allow them to kind of have an exclusive period of marketing their drug. Um, insurers are generally required by law to cover uh, most of the drugs, almost all the drugs that are approved by the FDA. Um, and, and so it, it, it's been very difficult to kind of set up a lot of competition to get prices in alignment with the added benefit to patients. So in the U.S. market, sometimes I, I like to say that sometimes we're getting fantastic values. We're definitely getting great innovation. With that, sometimes we're getting great value. Sometimes we're really not. And the hard thing is we haven't had a good way to know. We just haven't. So that's, in a sense, the mission of my institute is to try to provide that information and at least start the dialogue, you know, create a, a, a foundation for the dialogue that we really need to be having. Because ultimately, if a company gets to name its price, the incentives are really strong for them to push that as far as they can. And it just creates great stress throughout the whole healthcare system that ultimately hurts patients. Is there a way to quantify how much we might save or maybe how much more we might spend if we were paying for the value uh, of the drugs that we are taking um, as you might estimate them? Yeah, it's a, good, it's a great question. Uh, we haven't been able to do a kind of comprehensive look at, you know, all, you know, because there are thousands and thousands of drugs in the U.S. market, and what would a kind of a value-based price be for all of them? And you do have to think a little bit differently about generics versus brand drugs, because generics have gone through that earlier phase of kind of the innovative uh, era, if you will, for them, and, and so they really shouldn't be priced at that level anymore. Um, but I do know from our own work in which we've applied a cost-effectiveness kind of metric to say what's a fair added price for a certain amount of added benefit, um, the vast majority of drugs, even after we look at their um, pricing net of the discounts that they can receive from PBMs and others, um, anyway, net of that, of that discount, m- you know, most of the drugs in the U.S. market that we've looked at are still significantly overpriced if you want to price them in alignment with their added benefit to patients. Um, some examples would be that there's a new injectable form of, of drug for high cholesterol. Um, its list price is around 14000 Its net price, when the companies give a discount you know, back to the insurers and the PBMs, is maybe around 9 to 10 
And with recent um, clinical data that we looked at again, um, and again, kind of putting it into a long-term cost-effectiveness model, these drugs do work, but they seem to be priced way too high to fairly align with that benefit. And our metrics suggested that they should be priced around $2,000 a year um, instead of the 9 to 10 that is now kind of the, the, the prevailing price. We found very high prices in relation to that kind of value metric for drugs for osteoporosis, uh, for multiple sclerosis, for rheumatoid arthritis. But we do sometimes find drugs that are very well uh, kind of priced in alignment with that value. Um, we even had one company that was launching a, a major new drug this year for uh, very bad eczema. And they actually came to us as we were doing our review on their drug and worked with us to kind of learn themselves what a fair value-based price would be. And they actually came to market with the price that was lower than everybody had been expecting. Um, and the deal was basically they went to the insurers and said, look, if we're willing to price responsibly, and we'll use ISER's work as a metric or benchmark for that, how about if we create insurance coverage that doesn't make patients pay a whole lot out of pocket or have to go through all the different kinds of hoops um, to try other things and have them not work before they can get access to this new drug? And I'm happy to say that that kind of grand bargain um, seems to be working out, certainly for that drug. And we hope it's a model for for the whole system going forward, because ultimately, I feel that if we can get prices aligned with value, we'll pay less for a lot of drugs, we'll pay more or the same for some, but ultimately it'll be patients who should get better access and have to pay less out of pocket. Well, that's a that's a stunning example. Uh, Steve, thank you for sharing that. I, you rarely hear <laughs> good news stories like that when it comes to healthcare pricing in any discussion, but that's, that's fascinating. I, I want to ask you, though, about the earlier example that you gave mm-hmm. of... Um, this in, injectable, uh, as I what, what was it? The, yeah, they're, they're, they have a fancy name. They're called PCSK9 drugs. They're a new okay. form of treatment for high cholesterol. So they come out priced at fourteen five as a list price. Uh, negotiations get it down to around nine or ten, and you and you you discover or you do research and analysis, and you decide that maybe they're really only worth two two thousand dollars. Right. So you did you publish that statistic? I mean, you're talking about it on the radio, yeah, so presumably yeah, you did. Yes, we've worked actually a lot of our uh, of our cost effectiveness modeling uh, we do in conjunction with academic uh, collaborators around the country. Um, this happened to be done with a, a group out at uh, the University of California, San Francisco, and they published their work in in JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association. So what happened after that work was published? Well, we heard from a lot of uh, of insurers and others who who basically, and this, uh, our work on these set of drugs has, has actually extended for a couple years now because there's been ongoing um, research and new, new data to look at. Um, but again, it goes back to your first question, which is how are the prices set? So again, imagine these new drugs come out and the companies price them at 14000 The only guess that people had had before then was kind of whispers on Wall Street, uh, if you read the analysts, and they were saying maybe 10000 maybe eleven. So the companies come out with 14000 and in the U.S., again, you know, the companies might say, well, we priced it because we think it reflects the innovation and the benefit to patients and all that, but they, they don't put any math around that, and it's kind of a nebulous concept. So we try to go ahead and transparently as possible do the math, um, look at what a, a relatively fair margin for the benefit would be. Um, and so when we came out with that, we heard from a lot of insurers who said that they really appreciated having an independent report because when they do it, you know, it's in-house, and people sometimes worry that insurers will obviously have uh, mixed incentives um, in looking at new drugs. So for us, it's no skin off our teeth if, if we find that the price is high, low, or, or, or kind of around, around the right mark. So when we say it was, said it was too low, insurers took our report, and they, uh, it kind of strengthened their spine, we were told, as they tried to negotiate. Now, again, in the U.S., there is no cut point. There's no federal negotiation that says we're only going to pay up to this and that's it, or we're not going to cover it at all. So we still kind of have a, a competitive market that's limited in some way, um, in that regard at least. But we did hear stories that people felt like they were getting uh, better deals out of it, and some insurers decided to cover it uh, while also creating these kinds of outcomes-based agreements where they agreed with the company to monitor the patients who were taking the new drug. And if they didn't do well, if they went ahead and had a stroke or heart attack, then they would get a refund uh, from the company. So that helped knock down the price a little bit, but actually not that much. So 
a lot of insurers today are still out there hoping to negotiate a lower price, um, but paying today, you know, what they can um, in negotiation with the company, which is still, as I said, around nine to ten thousand. I'm John Barquette, and you're listening to the business of healthcare on Sirius XM 111. My guest for the second half hour of our show is Dr. Steve Pearson of the Institute for Clinical and Economic Research. Today we're discussing whether the benefits we get from prescription drugs are worth the prices we pay. If you'd like to join the conversation, please give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Steve, you've talked about this tension that exists between providing access to new innovative technologies and medicines and uh, and paying for them. Um, and you, you talk very eloquently about that. I wonder if you, if you might uh, talk to our audience about uh, that and what you think the future of, uh, you know, uh, us deciding to pay for these new technologies uh, looks like. Uh, a, a really good question. Um, what I see, and again, the, the statistics are, are really, uh, and the data about how high, you know, pricing is and drug spending overall. I will say that when I, you know, go to talk to state Medicaid programs, they actually aren't focused as much on how much the, the price is as how much they're spending on drugs and what it means for their overall budget. Because healthcare in general has been rising and kind of soaking in, uh, you know, resources from other parts of state budgets. It's clearly putting a squeeze now on private employers and their ability to provide benefits. And so the premiums are going up. You know, you've heard all the, the kind of difficulties we're having. So again, drugs are far from, you know, the only area where we need to seek better value. There's a lot of low-hanging fruit that we should always try to go after, unnecessary testing and surgeries, et cetera. But I do feel like we need a new model, and if we don't come up with one for pricing and for payment for drugs, um, we're going to have real trouble ahead. And the reason I say that is in part because we have a, the wonderful problem of fantastic innovation. Um, I think you, your listeners may have heard in the previous half hour, there really is a, you know, a revolution in genetic science that's coming through now into drugs and other treatments. Um, and so we probably will be spending more on drugs to, to make good use of those um, and to make sure we capture the value for patients. But because our system it seems imbalanced and we don't have the right mechanisms to kind of keep pricing and, and spending under control like we do for other parts of healthcare, um, that's where we get into trouble. So we are going to see drugs priced uh, north of 500000 per year. Hmm. There's pretty sure going to be a, a million-dollar drug pretty soon. And these are going to be great drugs. But the question is, where does that million-dollar price come from? Let's assume it's a drug to treat blindness in children or something that we would love to do. Um, but the company gets to name the price. So is $10 million the right number? Is 100000 Is a million? Is somewhere? How do we actually start to have the conversation about that? Because this company won't have competition, at least for several years. And um, I think we've just seen that with the pressures on the overall healthcare system, um, we, we need some kind of more modulated, hopefully evidence-based approach to pricing and spending. So we're trying that. I know that Medicare and Medicaid programs are looking around for different approaches, um, some of which are linked to kind of our kinds of reports as well. Everybody's trying to figure out how to get more competition, so speed up the FDA process to get more competing drugs because that can only help. Um, but ultimately, at the end of the day, um, we are going to have to make some difficult trade-offs, um, and to do that in the healthcare system, we're going to have to get serious um, and admit that we have to deal with pricing for drugs as part of it. So I, I'm sure that my uh, previous guest, um, Robert Zirkelbach from Pharma, he would uh, recoil at at the suggestion that we need to put some sort of price control on what a pharmaceutical company that has come up with a life-saving or life-changing drug uh, can price. And yet you you talk about these tensions that exist where we we have to balance what we can afford with with what we purchase. And so what what do you think? I mean what what's the um what will be the effect on innovation if we were to put some sort of price cap uh on what a on what a drug let's say that cures blindness. Right. Uh, well, I want to be clear. I think price control can certainly be heard by different people, uh, good and bad. I tend to actually not like it. I don't want price controls in, in areas where I want a lot of innovation. I think that's 
almost uh, kind of stereotypically American that we re recoil from the idea of price controls as a way to manage right. too much innovation, right? Right. So what do we do? So what I think we're, we're talking more than price control because there really are countries that – and it's hard to call it price control. Sometimes, I mean, if you see the choices that they're really making in their health systems – they really do have to make choices, and they say, look, we could buy one treatment for this patient at a million dollars, or we could do a whole lot with, for, for other patients with that money. And that's a hard choice for any society to make. Right. So I do think that we need to start to have you know, that level of discussion, um, because maybe we just need to raise taxes, um, you know, or we need to shift money over from other parts of our economy or certainly from within what more wasteful sectors of the health system. But where we know that we are getting good value already for drugs, we ought to celebrate that and make sure that patients can get good access to them with low out-of-pocket costs. Where we're not, I think we need to shine the spotlight. And we need to say, look, companies, manufacturers have been given great uh, responsibility and power in the setting of these prices. How do they do so responsibly? How do we as a society participate in that discussion? Um, and it may not be that we have price control, but it may mean that we have more discussion about it and just change the landscape a bit so that companies know that we're thinking about, you know, real value and demanding it from them and seeking their ideas of how they're connecting their own price to that value. So we've already, I think, had some shifting in the discussion, um, and the word value can get way overused. but. Right. We're still talking about it in a different way than we were four or five years ago, and partly that is because of the cost issues. Going forward, I think there will be some government uh, programs, perhaps like Medicaid, that might really say, look, we will cover this drug, but we can only pay up to this price. And, you know, company, what, what do you want to do with that? If we feel like it's a fair value-based price, we want to cover it. We're not going to say no. But we want to say yes, but we'll pay up to what we think is a price that doesn't price gouge, um, you know, our patients and our society. Then that kind of is a different discussion than price control in my mind. Yeah, you've got sixty seconds. If my last question for you, Steve, is is you know, you're let's say you're uh, in, in charge of health policy for the country right now. And for a day, and you have a chance to make a change. I'm going to need a lot more than a day, but go ahead. <laughs> you, you have one day, and you, you, you could uh, either recommend a, a public policy um, intervention or you, or you could kind of loosen the reins on, on the markets. And or, I hate to be oh, sure. breaking up that in way. In healthcare but, you know, overall or, or in the drug area? No, uh, drug area. Okay. And so again, you got to have about 30 seconds. All right. The one thing I would do is I would... Um, I would. It, it doesn't have to be exactly the kinds of methods or reports that we do, but this is something that we should be discussing. I mean, we can do it in the independent kind of nonprofit space, I guess, but I really do think this is a discussion that deserves to be held um, uh, in our governmental system. So if it's Medicare, we need to have a, a, them kind of commission their own research to look at the effectiveness of drugs and to start to think carefully about how Medicare pays for those drugs. It's the one area. They do that for doctor services, hospitals, devices, and tests. They don't do it for drugs. They just basically say, how much should I pay, um, and, let ho and hope that competition works. So I think Medicare needs to get into a different game and, and use evidence and discuss it with the public and share the kinds of difficult decisions that are always going to have to be made in a mature healthcare system. Steve, thank you so much for joining the show. All right. Thank you very much. You can follow ICER on Twitter at ICER underscore review. Uh, and that's all for our show today. You've been listening to the Business of Healthcare on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, here on Sirius XM 111. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.